So online poker really taught me, like, view things as a system mm. rather than personally. From there, I made a little over six figures from online poker, invested in a restaurant, a <laughs> franchise, is a Dickie's barbecue pit with a couple of my friends. So Texan. So Texan, <laughs> totally. And uh, long story short, the restaurant went out of business in 13 months. Hello everyone, my name is Daniel K. Chung, and I'm the host of Make SEO Simple Again, where ironically, we do not really talk about SEO, but rather dive into the personal stories of people who work within the digital marketing field. In this episode, I sit down with ClearScope CEO and co-founder Bernard Huang and talk about all things about life. I had the great fortune of meeting Bernard whilst he was in Sydney. He's in Austin, Texas these days. And over many cigarettes, we developed what I would like to think a bond. For those who do not know Bernard's story, his is one that is definitely worth listening to. From making his first six figures from online poker whilst failing college, to living out of his car for six months, to failing time and time again. As someone who has plenty of failures myself, his story resonated with me, and I think you will find plenty of truth bombs in this 48 minute long one-on-one. -on -one. So make yourselves comfortable and strap yourselves in because we're diving deep into Bernard's origin story to how he co-owns a SaaS company that has a monthly reoccurring revenue of $150,000, and that's US dollars. And also a language warning. We swear a few times throughout this episode, so please plan accordingly. So welcome to the show, Bernard. Welcome to uh, Make SEO Simple Again, where we ironically do not even talk about SEO. But <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Dan. So tell our audience who probably don't, who may not know who you are, a bit about yourself and maybe what you've worked on to give some context. Sure. Uh, I'm Bernard. I started a software as a service called ClearScope. Long story short, does natural language processing on Google, helps content creators create higher quality, more relevant content that then has a higher likelihood of performing on search. Before that, just spent the last decade failing at trying to get something off the ground. I think from a, an early age, I've always wanted to start a business in middle school, like made a board game, made a breakdance club, <laughs> always out trying to make something happen. And I wouldn't have ever expected that I'd end up in SEO mm. of all of the things, mm. but just kind of go with the flow, right? Life took me here and here I am. <laughs> Great. And I know you grew up in Austin, Texas. Texas, Dallas, Texas, Dallas, Dallas, yeah. Or Texas in general. And as a fellow Asian, I can only begin to imagine what that was like. Do you have a story around that? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I didn't really like realize maybe that I was living in a segregated or whatever environment, mm -hmm. right? Because when you're growing up, you just are surrounded by stuff mm. and then you just deem that to be your reality. Mm -hmm. And 
I'd say Dallas probably has a like two to three percent Asian population, but my best friends growing up were all Asian Americans who their parents settled in Dallas as well. But it was suburbs, right? You run around, play in the trees, throw rocks, that kind of stuff. <laughs> pre-internet days. Yes, pre-internet days. <laughs> now those we throw were... uh, emoji rocks. Yeah, yeah. Those and were... slander each other on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> More peaceful days because you weren't inundated with stimulation. Yeah. But yeah, grew up in Dallas, and then I was part of this like rather competitive suburb in Dallas called Plano, where people do strive very hard to get good grades. And so it was all about getting good grades, growing up in the Asian American household. Mm, I can definitely relate. I never, however, got good grades. What about you? <laughs> I. I tried my hardest to get good grades, and I succeeded pretty much until senior high school, the last semester. I like went to a boarding school for my last two years okay. in Texas, where you spend the last two years of your, your high school in college. So taking college oh. classes, okay. it's called like the Texas Academy of Math and Science. and. It was always what my parents wanted, and so it was always what I did, even though I always felt inside there was really no application to this learning, and I would just be memorizing formulas for the sake of memorizing formulas, mm -hmm. and I kind of broke at the last semester. I was like, no, nah, I'm not really doing this anymore, and that's when I started getting worse grades. <laughs> I see. And this, this pressure to perform well academically, I can only presume this also came from a cultural and family background. How has that shaped you into your personal journey? I think that I'm someone who loves exploring possibility. And if we're to take it to a metaphor and say that there are two types of people, not like there are uh, everything is a, a spectrum. Mm -hmm. There's what one could call a pathfinder and one that could call like a road builder. Mm -hmm. So Christopher Columbus goes, I'm going to go and sail and like find the path. And then once he maps out the path, then there is a different set of people that would come in who would like build the road to that path. Mm -hmm. And I feel like growing up, I was always interested in pathfinding. But the problem with pathfinding is that it's just inherently risky. It's uncertain. You don't know whether or not you're gonna strike gold or water when you dig the well. But that passion of digging the well and trying anyways, I think has just been this guiding light in my life. But I think having a strict upbringing around academia did teach me certain skill sets that now looking back on it, I'm very glad that I have. Mm. But growing up, it was always just like, ah, oh, why, why am I doing this? My dad would like have me come <laughs> in and be like, okay, well, you have a project, like 
you need to break this out into like discernible next steps. Whoa. Right? Like what are you like what is it exactly that you're gonna do? And you're like, oh, I don't know, man. I just gotta do something. <laughs> right? Let's try it. He's like, no, this is how how it works. This is how scrum like in that world <laughs> yeah. works. And so that taught me the importance of like organization mm. and like standard operating procedure mm. and the importance of optics really like growing up i would hate wearing any sort of formal clothing because it felt like constraining and restricting and unboxing me in and <laughs> fitting myself into like a contributing mm. member of society mm. Mm. and i was like no that's not it but then i realized that it's not not it right there's a certain grain of truth mm -hmm. to all of these things where to a certain degree you do have to like enter society and do these like menial tasks to like work up the ladder to then be able to have the opportunities and i feel that was just a long way of saying that um yeah, I really just enjoyed pathfinding, but the strict upbringing that my parents did have for me, I think taught me a lot of valuable lessons about how this all works and like why I should acquiesce to some things that I may not necessarily agree upon. Mm -hmm. Again, I can relate was my dad was, he did very well academically and he achieved quite high success in his career. And I remember throughout formal education years, he would tell me exams and what assessments, it wasn't about the grade itself, but it was a training for life. And of course, being eight years old, 14 years old, 17 <laughs> years old, I don't know what the fuck he was talking about. We're yeah. training for life, I don't know. But now as an adult, like now I'm in my 35s, it makes sense. Totally. Like if I couldn't even apply myself in just passing or reading something and then understanding it or writing it out, how could I deal with anything else in life that it will inevitably throw at you? And it has taken me decades, three decades to figure that out and to understand the wisdom of that. But of course, when you're young and egotistical, you don't understand that, you don't see it. No, no, I mean, you know, someone tells you follow these instructions, <laughs> you're eight years old, 10 years old, like, hell no, I'm not following these instructions. And I think, yeah, certain like lessons may have been like been able to like conveyed better. Mm. But <laughs> at the end of the day, yeah, I feel like, and I can't speak because I'm not a parent. Mm. I could imagine, right, if I had a kid and I see them suffering, right? Well, we use the proverbial like, burn their fingertips on the mm. stovetop. And I really feel that for a parent, it's really hard to allow for your child mm. to burn their fingertips mm. on the stovetop mm. because you've, do, you've been there and you've mm. done that. Mm. And I think that hopefully as, as like a, a parent in, in the future years that I would be able to allow my my children to burn their fingertips and if not <laughs> allow it like encourage it right yes. be like look you need to learn this for yourself and the only way to do it is to do it exactly how i feel although of course i didn't feel it at the time like i went through a whole bunch of shit myself and 
And I don't mind failing. And I don't think I've ever called myself a failure. And I'm raising this, as you said, in the past 10 years, you did a whole bunch of things such as failing, but you never described yourself as a noun, as a failure. And, and I think that's an important distinction because growing up, formal education, there was either you pass or failed. And then that would have a certain prescription of who you were going to become. And so I guess I want to segue into talking about your failures, if you're open to talking about them, into what were they and how did it make you feel? Yeah, yeah, mm, yeah, that's, I would say bad, <laughs> really <laughs> bad. Um, so I got started with the whole entrepreneurial thing, we'll say with like, starting to make money in college where I played some online poker. I had a high school acquaintance who made six figures in high school playing online poker. And I was like, God, I gotta get in on some of that. Like, I'm all about trying new things and like he's made money and I'm sitting here <laughs> listening to why A squared plus B squared equals C squared, which <laughs> I still have no idea why. <laughs> So I, I started playing online poker and my grades went drastically downhill. Mm. But what I learned through online poker was actually a very important piece that I think I come back to in life but oftentimes forget. And the important, the most important thing about poker that has taught well, that I learned from poker is that poker is a system. So when you think about playing poker, what you are actually doing is that you are implementing a system. Winning players have a winning system. Losing players have a losing system. That is the most important part because a lot of people will think at the first level so-and-so is a losing player, but that implies that so-and-so, right, needs to like get better and educate themselves and all of that. But when you think about it as a system, right, you say, okay, well, in this situation, I always do this action. But when you're then going back and analyzing your play, as one would in online poker, you're like, okay, well, why, why did I do that there? And is that actually like a good play for that particular scenario that panned out? And what you're doing is that then you're decoupling your losses from you being a failure, right? What is losing and what is a failure is mm. your system. Mm. And then you're making modifications on your system and then playing better. Mm. And so from that perspective, right, you could then abstract away failure, right, in the sense that like, oh, I am a failure. Well, what's actually, what's actually failing is the system that you're implementing. Mm. And that works pretty much across the board for everything, right? You're in sales and you're not closing as many deals. It's not because you're a failure of a salesperson, mm. but that for whatever reason, the system that you are employing is simply a failing system. Mm. So when you can then abstract away the emotional side of like, ah, you know, I just couldn't close that deal, then you understand, well, okay, the system is such that my close rate is 15%. And okay, I haven't closed 12 deals. Well, that's just variance, right? That's 
well, you're now underperforming what your average statistics should be. But that's exactly what poker is, right? You're like, okay, in this spot, when I do this, I'm going to win 66% of the time. Don't that never really usually happens? You lose some and you win some, and then that's that's how it goes. So online poker really taught me, like, view things as a system rather than personally. From there, I made a little over six figures from online poker. Invested in a restaurant. A franchise is a Dickies barbecue pit with a couple of my friends. So Texan, so Texan, <laughs> totally. And uh, long story short, the restaurant went out of business in 13 months. Because so, of the system, it was actually because of a system. Except now it added on extra like layers mm-hmm. of perspective. Mm-hmm. So one of the key problems was that the partnership that we had was five people. So five partners, say everyone's an equal owner, give or take 20%. The, one of the problems with a five-person team is that it's very distributed in your accountability and your level of ownership. So you can imagine if you're a 100% solo owner, like you were your wedding photographer, well, you're going to bust your ass because you own 100% of the pie. At a five-person distribution split, you own one-fifth of the pie. And so what ended up happening was what I call like least common denominator syndrome, where when you looked at the other four partners and you said, well, pfft, that guy's not doing shit. <laughs> like, why should I be coming in, you know, mm. scrubbing the, the hood, the mm. exhaust hood, mm. mopping the tables when he owns the same amount as me and I literally don't see him doing as much. And so in startup like world, you have Paul Graham, who is the founder of Y Combinator, who everyone looks up to. And he's like, yeah, I wouldn't recommend solo founding because that's very stressful on your like mental well-being. But I will also wouldn't recommend like beyond teams of like four or three. And I feel like the rationale behind that is that simply the amount of ownership usually that a large team um, like has distributed amongst themselves just makes it very difficult if one person is not like up to snuff yep. and bringing yep. that amount of level yep. to the table. So that, and yeah, actually the reason why the, the business sailed was because there was no standard operating procedure. There was no system. So things got personal, mm-hmm. right? Things where it's like, ooh, we can't open like our store tonight because the, the floors aren't cleaned or we would fail fire inspection like pretty frequently and the inspectors would be like, <laughs> you just can't open. And the reason was, was that there was no standard operating. There was no system, right? So the manager wasn't like, hey, employee, this is exactly how you close. And the employee would be like, well, the manager didn't tell me that this is how I close. And just fingers pointed everywhere mm-hmm. because there was no, like, this is exactly what you need to do. Did you do it? True or false? And so there was that. And obviously the communication issues of me being a, like, 21-year-old playing online poker and being like, ah, I could just make a couple hundred dollars an hour doing this. Why mm. am I going in and mopping the floors? Mm. <laughs> yes. That reminds me when, even though I had 100% stake, yes, my title was a wedding photographer, but 
you know, I had the upkeep of an office as well. And sometimes I am just cleaning and like, is this really what it is? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting and perspective. It is. And I guess that is carried over into Caliscope essentially, because it is a very small core team. Yes. Yes. So from there, uh, I was like, okay, well, I still haven't learned my lessons, right? That was like two Do lessons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, all right, okay. Brick and mortar is the problem. Okay, like yeah, the brick and mortar. You got all these these like blue collar workers, and I always turning over. Mm. I'm gonna go on. I'm gonna go digital. Mm. So I applied to accelerator programs across America, and got into a third tier accelerator that no one's ever heard of called Beta Spring, <laughs> because I wasn't up to snuff for mm -hmm. YC TechStars mm -hmm. 500. And they gave us $20,000. We moved to Providence, Rhode Island. It's in the New England area. And we, my technical co-founder, myself, and another non-technical co-founder, I'm a non-technical co-founder, we slummed it out. We built mobile apps. And we literally just couldn't find the ethereal product market fit. Um, but we literally also just couldn't focus. Our idea changed like once a month. And because we were suffering from like shiny object mm. syndrome. Yep. It's like some new bit of technology would come out and be like, dude, that's it. We're going to do that. So we would do the pivots or we'd pivot here, we'd pivot there. And I would say that the core takeaway from that is that focus is a very key component to success in the sense that if you keep jumping around, yes, people have made great livelihoods with you know, arbitraging, yep. capturing new trends, but that in of itself, you could even think of as like focus, right? You're focused on just capturing mm -hmm. short-term value in very quick snapshots, mm -hmm. and that's like what you're doing. But I just got like lost in possibility, so we kept flipping around ideas. At the end of it, we raised an additional $50,000, dragged it like out for two years, just trying to make something work. At the end of it, the venture like investors were just like, yeah, you should do this. And they gave us a business idea. And at the time, it was a mobile CRM. Keep in mind, it was like 2010. Mm. That was actually a great idea. And we built it and we actually got adoption, but we just did not have the the business chops to realize that A, we had an opportunity and B, how to execute and capture mm -hmm. upon it. Mm -hmm. So that then failed because I would say lack of focus, but also lack of understanding of how business works. Mm -hmm. At the gist, it's very simple. You need a product or a service that somebody wants to buy. Mm -hmm. Either you have a large number of people that are willing to buy it at a small price point mm -hmm. or a small number of people that want mm -hmm. to buy it at a large price point. Mm -hmm. And that is simply it. Mm -hmm. That is then like product market fit. Mm -hmm. But I didn't understand that. So after that failed, I was like, ah, it's because of my co-founders, <laughs> of course, right? As the egotistical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop me, it's you. Yeah, of course. It has to be course. you. Yeah. So I said, no, no, I'm going to do this again. And so I moved back to Texas, joined up with my now co-founder, and we worked on a marketplace for baked goods. <laughs> and we, you know, 
did it for a good nine months. Basically, my bank account was $60 by the end of all of this. And that didn't work out because, again, I don't think we had the focus and the business experience to understand how to capture and like size <clears throat> the opportunity. So after that one failed, it's like, all right, fuck it. I really don't know what I'm doing. So I then moved to Silicon Valley and joined a, the criteria was that it had to be a Y Combinator startup. And so I just went on Y Combinator's homepage and applied to everyone that was listed in their portfolio. Mm -hmm. And this company called 42 Floors just took me up. They're like, all right, you've played online poker. You've done some growth hacks in the past because as the non-technical person, you're mm -hmm. always the guy selling, yeah. trying to find traction. And they took me in. The craziest thing about like 42 Floors in Silicon Valley is that that place is is insane. They gave me a blank job offer. I was like, yeah, you fill in how much you want to make. That's how we do these things over here. And I was like, well, I want to make six figures. So I filled in $100,000. Why only 100? Why not 900? Uh, yeah, well, they also like had a spreadsheet where you saw how much everybody else was making. <laughs> so you'd be like, oh, the engineer makes this and the CEO makes that. So I was like, all right, 100 seems like reasonable and I want to make six figures. So mm. I filled in 100. They took me in and then I just ran all of, all of the things growth for them. Basically tried paid ads, tried all the spectrum. SEO really was the only thing that took off. And then from there, well, I moved to Silicon Valley because I was like, I want to know how the, how the magic happens, right? And the magic always seems to be happening over there. And after a year and a half, really my core takeaway was just that Silicon Valley is special in the sense that there's a high density of talent and a high density of money. And the two of those factors combined tend to breed better outcomes. But I was like, okay, well, there was nothing super special about this. Mm. Clearly, I think I have the chops too to spring out back on my own. And so then I came out again and started a gaming, like a tutoring for gamers. Except again, right, I still hadn't nailed in the concept that, okay, like there needs to be a business model and money needs to be like made. Yep. And what we found was that, yeah, 15 year olds did want to get better at playing League of Legends, but did 15 year olds have money? No. And, you know, we'd have, we'd look at the messages that would be happening across our like gaming marketplace. And it'd be like, oh, well, like, sorry, I got to cancel on you. My mom's making me sleep at like nine. <laughs> and then we're like, okay, we did some quick math. And yeah. now like, you know, the VC, the private equity things, it's like come, starting to make sense. We'd be like, okay, if we took 10% of a transaction, and say a coaching happens for $5 an hour, we would make 50 cents. We're like, okay, to make enough money for say the both of us to live, say it was, let's call that $10,000 a month. Like we need 20,000 of these to happen on our platform every month. We can do that, sure. And um, that's where it like hit home. Yeah. It's like, oh shit. Mm. That is A, very unlikely to happen, and B, even if it happens, Platforms have leakage, so they'll take the transaction off the platform. Mm -hmm. And we, so we're like kind of fucked. And so at the same time though, I think the other thing I've learned as a non-technical founder is that network is net worth. Mm. So what I didn't realize was that 
be going in and becoming a part of that Y Combinator network meant access to the Y Combinator network. So I did a decent job doing the SEO at 42 Floors. They got a lot of requests. Hey, you know of anyone who could help us do SEO at DoorDash, at Teespring, at all of these other Y Combinator mm. companies. I always point to Bernard or me and be like, yeah, you should talk to that guy. He knows his shit. You see, mm. we're ranking number one for office space. Mm. And so they would come. And for the longest time, my co-founder and I would turn them away and be like, nah, nah, nah. We're working on this coaching thing. But you know, the bank account runs dry. And we're like, fuck, well, we should be talking to DoorDash. And, and so we then turned it into an SEO agency. And that's where it was like, okay, now I know. I got, we're selling services now, but we're selling services, but people want them. A non-trivial amount of people want them, and they're willing to pay some good money. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, now we're in business. But the core business was never to scale around an agency. So we always just kept it as the two of us. And we were always on the hunt for, for products. And after doing a lot of consulting work, which... I do recommend if you want to go down the path of being your own man, some amount of consulting exposure, right? Whether you're working at a, an agency or you're just doing some freelance work, it teaches you so much about packaging, negotiation, closing the sale, understanding unit economics, right? How much time is going in? How much am I getting out? You are running a business. Yes, it's not very scalable, but you learn a lot of the core skills that you would need mm. to run a successful business. Mm -hmm. And you also get over your fear of rejection, mm -hmm. which mm. if you're like wanting to do your own thing, it's a very tough pill to swallow. But when you have $60 in your bank account and you're not going to eat next month, yeah. you fucking close the deal. <laughs> <All right. laughs> So yeah, we then transitioned from consulting to product. And I would say the core learning experience there was that we had to burn the boats. There had to be no plan B because as a consulting agency, you, get, you have your bread like money that's coming in from your client work, but it's so easy to then just say, well, we should be doing more of that. So when we made the switch, we were very conscious of not taking on any more clients, mm -hmm. basically telling our existing clients that the engagements would be ending in the upcoming months. Mm -hmm. And we went all in. And I think that if we didn't go all in, we would, things would have moved a lot slower, right? Because we'd just be saying, yeah, I mean, it's not taking off, but we don't need it. We can always fall back. Let's take on another two, three clients. Exactly. 20K retainers, all sorts. Mm. Yeah. So that would then be like the spectrum. I think in the early days, it would be uh, system, right? Think, think in terms of systems rather than personally. Number two would then be be careful who you start the company with and make sure that they're aligned with like the motivations and passions that you are aligned with. Number three would be every successful business needs a product slash service and a market. Mm -hmm. And understanding the unit economics of that is how big your business can get. 
number four. And that's why I think VCs are always like, well, what's the total addressable market? And that's actually how I think nowadays, right? I like study competitors, a big enterprise SEO company, 3,500. You know, if we got to then that, which we could expect as our floor of customers, right? Because they sell it for thousands of dollars a month, then our business would be worth $10 million a year. But at the like ceiling, right, you have HREFs as a very massive like company. Maybe they service 10,000, 15,000. But we're not going to quite get there because we're a specialty tool within SEO. So now we're looking at a band of like 4,000 to 15,000 as the total addressable market. And then, right, then you can even just, there you go. That's the size of the opportunity. And then I would say just a lot of soft things around focus, right, burning the boats, making sure that like you're going all in and sometimes the path is just not not clear, right? You could just go all in. Yeah. And, and it would just go up in smoke. Yeah. And that's okay. And that is okay. Cool. Let's touch upon focus and how you find focus in your daily life. Because it's I I would believe it's a constant thing that you have to practice. Funnily enough, I don't do a good job nowadays. I'd say in the earlier days when I was not really having any traction with any of our products, it was, it was easier to find focus. It was, there was a lot less stress, right? A lot less expectations placed upon me as the person who's like, well, running something that nobody cares about, right? So it was a lot easier to just get up, take a nice hot bath. That's what I usually do to ground myself. I lay on the yoga mat, let it all dry off. And then I'd perform yoga anywhere between like 30 minutes to an hour 30. Well, because there's no meetings to take because no one wanted to talk to me. <laughs> I'd roll into work when I wanted to roll into yeah. work. And I would be, uh, I'd have like a framework of, okay, this is what I want to accomplish this week. The objective is to talk to 10 potential customers and breaking everything out as like as concrete of next actions, right? So to talk to 10 potential customers, it means prospect on LinkedIn, collect 100 emails, and then right, send 100 emails, right? So it has to be as granular as possible. I'll go in and be like, okay, well, what does this project look like? What is the objective? And what is the concrete steps that I'm gonna take to accomplish this as actionable as possible? And that's what I would do. And then I'd do that, put like go home, put my phone on airplane mode. I didn't even have like internet at home. No way. I was just like living like as monkish of a life <laughs> as I could. And I found great focus and like things were very peaceful. But nowadays, man, <laughs> it's like shit's like got off the charts. Mm -hmm. So I'm struggling with finding that focus mm -hmm. because I'm always constantly the one where requests are being put in front of me. Or it's like, hey, can you do this? Do you want to do a partnership? Mm -hmm. I want you to speak at this event. I want you to do this. And I still really haven't found a great system mm -hmm. to defend against mm -hmm. the amount of requests that I've been 
like pushed my way. And I think that that's frazzled my life to a certain degree. And I could imagine that this is why some executives will have secretaries, right? They'll be like, I'll just talk to my secretary. And the secretary will be like, well, Bernard's first availability is four weeks from now at this date, take it or leave it. But when the requests are just put in front of me, right, say it's coming from you, I just empathize with you. And I'm like, I was once you. And I once was the guy who was asking for help, needing advice or needing some of your time. And you gave it to me. And so I feel very compelled to pay it back, right? And like, look, people are getting started all the time. I was once you, and so therefore I will help you. And that has gotten us to where we've gotten to, but at the same time, now it's this like prioritization. Who's looking after Bernard? Yeah, I mean, Bernard Bernard. should be looking after Bernard, but yeah, I think that's just then like hiring and turning that into a system where I don't feel so personal by it. And I think, you know, the scheduling link, like, okay, if you want to chat, here it is. Mm. And people are like, ah, well, it's like six weeks from now. Like, well, that's that's what the system says. Mm. And then not like piling in Mm. more because Mm. people will be like, well, I want to talk in the next two. Mm. But at the same time, you have to, I've like realized I have to leave room. That's like buffer room. Right, because something really juicy will of come course. in, and that's where it'd be like, oh, well, I got to, I got to squeeze that mm. one in. It's having that system so that you can have the freedom to make that choice. Yes, apart yes. from feeling burdened to, I must say yes. Yeah, so I've been working on that, and it's it's a work in progress. But I'd say these days I am, if thing, I'm just reacting to things. Mm. Like, do this, do that. Mm. I have a problem with your software. <laughs> Come talk here. I'm like, yes, mm. no, okay. Here's <laughs> how to do that. <laughs> no, it's, it's great to hear in someone with your status be candid about the things that you struggle with and to be able to admit that you don't have a solution right now. Yeah. At least you're aware of it and you are taking measures against it. Yeah, and I think the most complicated part is that it's constantly changing, mm. right? Systems break all mm. the time. Mm. And I think what a lot of people do is they get stuck, stuck in a standard operating procedure. And that's where like life feels stagnant. And it's like, okay, well, that's where a change of scenery or breaking out of that current mold would make a lot of sense. And that's where midlife crises come from, mm. where it's like stagnant systems that haven't evolved mm. to fit the mold of your current life. That's the most complicated part. It's like there's no one size fits all and well, and it's also constantly changing. Which is, you know, it's a mind boggle to wrap your mind about, but, but that's essentially life. And that's essentially life. So I guess to wrap things up, on a more positive note perhaps, what are you excited for in the coming year? Honestly, I'm excited to take a breather. Mm. To put things more, put my own like personal needs in more of the forelight. And that's not to say, you know, slowing business things down, but I feel like at the end of the day, if we are just talking in terms of like business 
success. I feel business success for me is an environment where I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I am ready to like go into work and I'm excited. And I want to be able to replicate that day in and day out. And I think as a result of my inability to have prioritized my own personal needs, these last few months have been rather like mood swingy for me. Mm. Like wake up some days and just be like, dude, mm. fuck. <laughs> what have I like gotten myself into? Because I hadn't had a proper system to capture all of this demand that has had been coming in. And I think for the next year, I'm really excited about, okay, how do I put these, these correct systems and boundaries in place so that I can wake up again in the morning and be fulfilled and ready to go into work. And I'd say that's something that for the rest of my working career is what I would like mm. to like achieve. I love it. It's yeah. great to, to get that perspective because it, it's important. You need to take care of yourself. And, and I guess doing this podcast is, is a way that I'm doing that as well, is, is having the courage to step out and tell the world I exist. Whereas, you know, the previous me would be hiding in some corner. Oh, I'll just write a blog post. I'll interview you and write it. Was that, that's easier. Yeah. There's, no, there's no skin in the game, essentially. Yeah. And it's great to hear from you that it is something that you're going to focus on. And from hearing your story, I, I feel encouraged. And the respect is even higher because you recognize that's something that you may not have addressed very well and you're working on actively. I think it comes and goes in phases, right? Mm. And like nothing in life is like right or wrong or good or bad, right? When you're young or broke, you're hungry. It's and just the state of being. It is exactly, what it is. and yeah, it's gonna like skew towards then prioritizing, making money over and like hustling over, watching Netflix and laying on a yoga mat for an hour, right? But then I think it's that that piece that. I probably have not done a good job is that that self-reflection piece. Mm. I think like baking in a practice of, I think the best people do this fairly consistently, yes. right? Bill Gates is known to fly to his lake house once mm. a year for like one week with no reception mm. and just read books and take notes. Two bags of books. Exactly, <laughs> the, the documentary, right? And it's like, it's very important to weave that into a cadence. And then I think the most important part is the like discipline, but I wouldn't even call it discipline. I would say like motivation, mm. right? When it's discipline, it feels like forced. it's forced. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, why am I doing this? But it's like something that you naturally just want to do and like finding how to like cultivate that natural, like want to self-reflect mm. is like an interesting piece of like knowledge that I'm always toy like turning around in my head. Mm, fantastic. Well, I really appreciate your time. Yes. I can only imagine what your time is worth, but uh, thank you for giving me like half an hour and, and a lot more over the past few days. Of course, man. Thank you very much. No, thank you for having and me. all the best in self-care. Ah, you too. <laughs> Namaste. <laughs> And that, folks, is a wrap to this episode of Make SEO Simple Again. Did you like this episode? 
would you like to hear more of this? Then don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and also YouTube. Search for Make SEO Simple Again and you will find us there. It would also mean the world to me if you could take a few seconds of your precious time to write me a review. This will help others discover Make SEO Simple Again. We have also a Facebook community group called Make SEO Simple Again where anyone can join and seek answers to SEO related challenges that they are facing. Whether you're a beginner or someone who has been doing SEO for years, I think you will find the community over at Make SEO Simple Again to be friendly. After all, the entire aim of this podcast series and the Facebook group is to make digital marketing accessible, approachable and actionable for all. For example, if you know you want to invest some serious time and energy into SEO but don't know where to start, our Facebook group will be a great way to get different opinions and options. Or perhaps you want to know why your website is nowhere to be found in the SERPs or you want to find out how to enable links in your FAQ page rich results. Again, Make SEO Simple Again is the place to go. So until next time, I'm Daniel Kechung, the host of Make SEO Simple Again, and it has been an absolute pleasure spending time together with you. Be well, stay curious, and I cannot wait to share more stories of you next time.